0: Uh, Would you like to turn to 1 Peter? Because that's where our passage is this morning. We'll read it shortly. I just want to get the reference. I've written it down. 1 Peter 3, 8 to 17. I'm just going to grab my water as well. Thanks, love. 1 Peter 3, 8 to 17. For those of you who are maybe 10 or 15 years younger than me, it's, it's quite an interesting thing, um, becoming middle-aged. <laughs> there, there's some interesting changes that happen um, in one's life and in one's body, not least this sort of loss of hair. Um, and, and a mate of mine was, was also grappling with this, this whole thing of becoming middle-aged. And, uh, and he said to me, Ian, I've decided I'm going to get into shape. I said, fantastic. He says, yeah, I'm going to start playing cricket, which seemed like, <laughs> seemed like a good idea. So I was like, great, go for it. Um, and then I bumped into him sometime later, and uh, he, he was hobbling along. <laughs> I said to him, what happened? He said, "Now I injured myself playing cricket. And he told me the story, and he said he went to a sports doctor, And and this sports doctor said to him, the thing you need to understand, and this is for all the middle-aged gentlemen here, and ladies, I suppose, for that matter, but more so men, because we've got big egos, he said, you know, if you want to get into shape when you're middle-aged, don't do it by starting to play cricket or starting to play squash, because you actually need to get in shape before you start playing (laughs) cricket or squash, because you're just going to injure yourselves. And, and, and then this, this reminded me of my, of my dad as well. He was perhaps about 10 years younger than I am now. And uh, he decided it was time to, to do something about the, the belly fat and, and, and get into shape. And so on day one of his exercise regime, he went into the lounge and he put on a rock and roll record. <laughs> Can you believe it? It was like six o'clock in the morning, and we just hear rock and roll going through the house, and started doing sit-ups, and he gave himself a, a double hernia. So, so the point is, um, the point is that if if we you know if we want to endure persecution, we need to get into shape for it, and I'd like to present a strategy today. Uh, It's not my strategy. It's one that's presented in this this letter of Peter's to the church in Asia Minor. Um, And it's got three aspects to it. It's got an an upward aspect, an inward aspect, and an outward aspect. Why would Peter be writing about this strategy to get into shape for persecution? Well, at the time there had been a certain amount of persecution in the Roman Empire. It would break out in different places and in different times, but it wasn't systematic. It wasn't an official policy of the empire. But there was a new emperor in Rome, and his name was Nero. I'm sure you would have studied him in history. Nero was a nasty piece of work, and he felt threatened by the Christians. He felt that they had too much power, and he was looking for an excuse to deal with them. And Fortunately for him, there was this fire that got started in Rome. It burnt almost the whole of Rome to the ground. He was delighted because it meant that he could rebuild Rome and make it look nice again. But also it gave him this opportunity to blame the Christians and to start persecuting Christians and deal with the threat. And so he started feeding them to the animals in the Colosseum. And there was this official policy now sanctioned by the very emperor himself and the people that Peter was writing to an Asia Minor, were geographically quite well separated from Rome, but he knew that the persecution was coming, and so he was getting people prepared for it. The thing is that um, before we talk about getting into, into shape for persecution, we need to see the need, isn't it? You know, when you're a middle-aged guy and you're starting to, <laughs> to, to, to have some of these changes that I was alluding to, you, you, you start to have a reason to get into shape, to get fit. And we need to have a reason to get into shape for persecution. So here's one. I'd like to read this. It's from an article written by Dr. Ochab, and it's published by Forbes magazine. It was in, in January this year. And this is what the, the good doctor writes. On January 19, 2022, Open Doors, an international NGO advocating on behalf of persecuted Christians, released their annual World Watch list. The World Watch list assesses 50 countries where Christians face the most severe types of persecution. The newly published data reveals significant changes in the situation of Christian minorities around the world. According to the research, the persecution of Christians has reached the highest levels since World Watch began nearly 30 years ago. And then he, he quotes directly from, from the, the report. Across 76 countries, more than 360 million Christians suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith and this is significant, an increase of 20 million since last year. 312 million Christians live in the top 50 countries alone, and I thought this was very significant. One in every seven Christians live under at least high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. One in every seven. So if you take that 300 million multiplied by seven, that's more or less equivalent to the 2.2 billion Christians that there are in the world. And that really surprised me. That opened my eyes that one in every Christians on this planet is being persecuted for their faith. And then, of course, we come to last week's sermon when the disciples ask Jesus, what are the signs of the end of the age? What are the signs of your coming? And he says, amongst the other things that he mentioned, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death." and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Paul writes to his disciple Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 4.12. He writes to the Philippians, and I think this is interesting. He says, it has been granted to you. Now that word granted is the same word that you would use to describe giving a gift to somebody. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. What was was part of the conflict that they saw when he was with them? He ended up in that Philippian jail, didn't he? Got beaten with rods, ended up in the stocks, um, was there all night singing praises to God, and then an earthquake came and released them from prison. So that, they knew exactly what he was talking about here. And as a, a last example, I think this is closer to what we've been learning as a church because it comes from Romans 8:16. It says that heirs of God and follow heirs with Christ. Paul is referring to himself and the people in Rome, the Christians, the elect that he's writing to. Heirs of God and follow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, to share in the kind of sufferings that the Lord Jesus had. And so the reason why we need to get into shape is because persecution is coming. And it does come with being a child of God. And so we need to get into shape for it. I'm going to read 1 Peter 3, 8 to 17. If you'd like to turn there in your own Bibles, always a good thing. To do that, one Peter eight. I oh, one Peter three, eight to 17. This is when you start to panic, because people realize you don't know where one Peter is. <laughs> one Peter three. Verses eight to 17. Finally. You could say, to sum up, finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. In other words, those who seek to live the way God wants them to live. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That's God's word. So verse 8 deals with the inward aspect of the strategy. And then verses 9 to 11 with the outward aspect. Verse 12 with the upward aspect. And then the rest of the verse brings some further clarification to the outward and the upward aspect. Aspect of the strategy. So let's start with verse 8. The first thing that we need to do is we need to build and maintain a healthy church family. Finally, or perhaps a better translation there would be to sum up, all of you have unity of mind. What does it mean to have unity of mind and why is it important? Well, when you have a diverse group of people with different gifts and different abilities. We're not all the same. Unity comes when we all have the same aim or purpose. So we need to have the same aim or purpose. And at at Harvest, we've defined it as loving God, reaching the lost, and maturing in Christ. When we have that common purpose, then it brings unity. And of course, unity is essential when we are experiencing some sort of external threat whether it's something to do with the economy or some sort of direct persecution. And so if we come to church and our overriding motive is different to that, maybe it's some sort of a selfish motive, then it's not going to be aligning to the motive of harvest and we're going to start pulling in different directions. The other thing about this purpose, this purpose of loving God, Um, maturing in Christ and reaching out to the lost, is that that needs to happen irrespective of what's going on in our outward circumstances. It doesn't matter whether we're in economic crisis, whether we're going to be experiencing some sort of election chaos. Whatever it is, we need to continue to love God, to win the lost, and to be transformed, to be changed into the likeness of Christ. And when we have that goal then suddenly we have a compelling reason to persevere and to overcome. It's that which gives us the motivation to go beyond what we thought we could do as we turn to God for his help. And it helps us to get in shape for persecution. So there's a lot of training that can can be going on, even though we might not be experiencing direct persecution at the moment. However, and this is also significant, When we are under external attack, we need to take care of each other. And that's not going to happen unless we're sympathetic. That's why he says there that we need to be sympathetic. Being sympathetic means taking the trouble to look beyond your own life and find out what another person's life is like. We need to understand what life is like for them. But that sympathy, that, that only really just starts the process. It's a a process that needs to move towards brotherly love and having a tender heart or compassion. Because compassion is sympathy with shoes on. It's acting on the sympathy that you feel. When I have sympathy, I feel your pain in my heart. But when I have compassion, I do something about what I feel. And doing what I can to help somebody else, that shows that I love them. And so we need to be making an effort as a congregation to make sure that we're all on the same page and constantly analyzing our motives. Why are we here? What's the point for being here? Let's make sure that it's so that we can grow in our love for God, reach out to the lost, and be changed into the likeness of Christ. And then let's have a focus on other people. Let's look beyond our own lives and be sympathetic to other people and show our love for them in action. Genuine love for harvesters needs to be at the core of our harvest community. Therefore, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. And then if you keep on reading, it says a humble mind. What does it mean to have a humble mind? I think that, in essence, it means that I'm aware of the fact that I'm not the only person in the universe I'm, I'm aware of the fact that my desires, my needs, my goals are not the only ones in the universe. It's, it's starting to be aware of what's going on around me and then starting to make sure that other people's goals and desires are met. That's what humility is like. We need to be humble in mind. Let's not think that we're more important than we are. And if you're only thinking about yourself, you're actually making the declaration that you think you're more important than other people. Just to close this particular section, this is the inward section. When, when Catherine and Matthew were still at home, we knew that when they went to school, they would experience things that they wouldn't experience at home. They would experience pressures and stresses and attacks once they were out of the home. And so we couldn't necessarily control what was happening to them. But the one thing that we could control is to make sure that we had A close, tight family unit where they were loved and affirmed and encouraged so that they were equipped to deal with what was going on outside in the world. And I'm sure you do the same things for your family. And that's what we want to happen here at Harvest. So that's the inward focus. Let's have a look now at the outward focus. And this is, well, I mean, I say it's where it gets difficult Actually, all of this is a challenge. We wouldn't be able to do it unless we had God's Spirit inside of us. But I do find this challenging. First one is do not retaliate. Look there at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Can you see that this idea of evil and reviling... It covers all sorts of things. Evil could be a behavior, or it could be speaking badly about someone, or it could be slandering someone. Reviling is verbally abusing somebody. And so, I need to make sure that I'm getting into the habit of not returning reviling with reviling. When somebody shouts at me in the traffic, I mustn't shout back, call them a pumpkin. (laughs) I've called them a lot worse than that. Folks, that reviling happens to all Zimbabweans. It's common to all Zimbabweans. It's not specifically because we are Christians. But a time is coming when we could be reviled because we are Christians. If we can't handle it when it's happening to everybody, how much... Lesser are we going to be able to handle it when it's targeted at Christians. We don't do reviling. We don't try and balance the scales of justice when someone, for example, drives badly in the traffic and threatens us. The temptation is then to balance the scales of justice by doing the same thing ourselves. And we end up driving dangerously to try and teach them a lesson. I'm using an example here that we can all relate to. Um, we mustn't retaliate. We mustn't try and balance the scales of justice. What does it say here? What is the opposite thing that we do? That we do, But on the contrary, bless. So if someone calls you a pumpkin in the traffic, uh, then bless them. You know, I've often thought about it, that Satan and his demons, the way they harm people is by putting a curse on them. And so when we curse somebody else, we're actually aligning ourselves to the enemy by cursing somebody and saying, I hope you have an accident. That's a curse, you know. A blessing says, gee, I hope you encounter Jesus today in some way. I hope in some way you get a taste of God's love. That's a blessing. It's the opposite of reviling. This is how we get ourselves into training. And I realize that in many ways I've got such a long way to go. You know, got so much training to do. So that's the first one. Then the second one in verse 10 is to live right. Whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So once again, we can see that this is both about words And actions, words of actions that please God, that conform to his code of conduct, that are right in terms of the way he defines right and wrong. And that's why in the next verse he uses the word righteous. Folks, if we can learn to live right in all circumstances, no matter what the consequences, whether it's convenient or whether it's inconvenient, then we're going to be getting into shape for persecution. It's going to be a time when the price of obedience to God is going to be so much higher. I'd like to read to you a quote from a, uh, a book written by Christo Kulichev. He was an evangelical pastor in Bulgaria, and uh, he, was, he experienced a lot of persecution and imprisonments in the 1980s. I got this book actually um, as a present from Mike and Kate. Lawton. Evangelical leaders in Bulgaria learned early in 1949 that life was more fulfilling and faith more meaningful. We want that, don't we? A more meaningful life, more meaningful faith, when lived solely by the principles of God's word. And that applies to us now even when we're not being persecuted. There could be no compromise on basic truths such as the Lordship of Christ and the commission to be his witnesses. It was far healthier, even when persecuted, to simply trust God's promises, channeling intellect and energy toward maintaining one's fidelity to Christ. Rather than trying to figure out how to get out of it, how to get even, uh, worrying about it, no, maintain your fidelity to Christ. They learned that living for God's glory is always better than living for one's own convenience. That is so true. And I pray that we all grasp it, that living for, one's own, uh, living for God's glory is always better than living for one's own convenience. And notice that, that Kulichev here, he's talking about living solely by the principles of God's word. And then he narrows the scope down. He gives us an example of that by saying that we need to live for the lordship of Christ and witnessing. And Peter does exactly the same thing. In today's passage that's the third thing that we need to do is we need to witness fearlessly in verse 13 you look there Peter starts with a general principle he says now who's there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good if you do what is good in God's eyes it's unlikely that people will want to harm you okay Peter wants to be sure that society will have no excuse to revile or punish us, save for obedience to God and his laws. And in fact, he says here that our witnessing needs to be done with gentleness and respect. There must be no excuse. Gentle, respectful, always being prepared, in verse 15 there, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Sometimes, because we're feeling anxious and a little bit insecure, we actually go over the top in pushing our case, and we sound arrogant. We mustn't do that. Just do it with gentleness and respect, politely. However, and and this is where the, the, the rubber starts to hit the road, persecution has got nothing to do with punishing evil. So Peter is saying here, you know, if you obey God's law, then people are not going to have a good reason to persecute you. But unfortunately, Satan does. He wants to suppress the truth because the truth can save people. He wants to stop you from sharing your faith. That's the ultimate goal. And that's why witnessing is so important. He wants to stop people from being saved through the gospel message. So Christians are persecuted for obeying God's standards in their lives, but even more so, they are persecuted for witnessing. But, look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, look what will happen, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. You know, we're talking about a God who has an eternity prepared for us In his presence, with him. We can't lose. And the Bible tells us that when we live righteously, we will receive a reward in heaven. So, wouldn't we want to go for that reward in heaven rather than some sort of comfort or convenience here on earth? When Christo Kulichev was in prison, um, he knew that his family and church were under pressure. It must have been very difficult for him. How are they doing? How's my mom doing? How's my brother doing? How's the church doing? I've made the stand. I'm in prison. Are they also going to make the stand, or are they going to compromise? And, and so whilst he was in prison, his brother Stefan came to visit him with a message from his mother. And she said, Stefan, I want you to tell this to Krista." And here it is. We remain faithful to what we know to be right and leave the consequences to God. Isn't that important? You know, God delights to take responsibility for the consequences of our obedience. He delights to take responsibility for the consequences of our obedience. And that was what Christo had to do. Because he was, he was thinking, well, who's going to be looking after my mom when I'm in prison? Who's going to be looking after my church? Who's going to be looking after my family? And yet I need to do this because it's the right thing to do. God will take responsibility for that. He delights to take responsibility for the consequences of our obedience. And I remember Ken Jenkins talking um, about a, a missionary family, mom and dad. Um, they felt Christ uh, felt the Lord calling them to the Horn of Africa. They took their children along. People were saying to them, you're absolutely mad to take your children along to that part of the world. They used to describe that part of the world, I probably still do, as the armpit of Africa. It's just like a hot, smelly, miserable place. But the amazing thing is that as their children grew up, up, they said to their parents, and they kept talking about this, that the most enjoyable time of their lives was when they were in the armpit of Africa. God took responsibility for the consequences of the parents' obedience. And we must do that as well. Now, if the consequences of good behavior in Christ deter us from living righteously when there is no persecution, how can we expect to be in shape and to endure persecution? And if we're afraid to be known as a Christian now, how can we expect to be ready to witness when the stakes are higher in a time of persecution? So let's just sum up. Here's the strategy so far. Inward, build and maintain a healthy church family. Outward, learn not to retaliate. Leave the justice to God. That's what Jesus did, isn't it? He submitted himself to the cross, knowing that one day God would bring justice. Do not retaliate. Live righteously do the right thing and get into the habit of doing the right thing now no matter what the consequences are leave that to god witness fearlessly let's turn now to the last aspect which is the upward aspect that general concept is contained in verse 12 um, which reminds us there to be aware of god and then peter comes back to it in the section from 13 to 17 so let's have a Have a a brief look at it. Verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Isn't that lovely? The eyes of the Lord and his ears are open to us. Sometimes, We feel isolated and we feel that perhaps God isn't aware. But it says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. But it's not only that he's just maybe watching from a distance. When it says that his ears are open to their prayer, you can be sure that God's going to do something about those prayers, isn't he? Otherwise, his ears might as well be closed. His ears are open to their prayer. But... Look in contrast, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Much better for us to be doing the right thing as best we can, covered by God's grace, forgiven when we make a mistake, but to fear the Lord because he's the one who really counts. I wonder if you're prepared to leave justice to God when someone does you evil. Are you aware that God is for you, and he is against those who do evil. And unfortunately, we often cross the line and we start acting like God by taking justice into our own hands. It's not our job to be against the person that does evil for the sake of balancing the scales of justice. That is God's job. Two wrongs don't make a right. God is going to do it. Be aware of God. A time is coming when he will bring complete justice. Verse 14 says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. I wonder if you believe that. I know that I I have difficulty getting that to really settle down into my heart. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. We need to be aware of God. And verse 17 contains another truth that helps us. When we look at this, verse 17 says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, and this is what I want to highlight here, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. You know, sometimes it is God's will that we suffer for doing good. Otherwise, Christians wouldn't be persecuted because if it wasn't God's will for us to be persecuted, we wouldn't be persecuted. Sometimes it is. And surely if that is the case, he knows what he's doing and he will work it out for our good. That's the whole thing that we've been learning in Romans 8, isn't it? So be aware of God. But there's more, and this is what I'd like to close on, is put Jesus in charge. Remember that Peter was encouraging fearless witnessing? We'll look at the end of verse 14 and the start of verse 15. He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. If something is holy, it means that it's set apart. Set apart for a special purpose. Set apart as opposed to everything else. Separated from everything else. And so what we're doing is in our hearts we're saying, God is holy. Jesus is holy. He's different to everything else. I'm not going to be tempted to value this thing more than Jesus, because this thing is its not holy. It's in a totally different category to, to Jesus. He's, he's holy, and so I want to put him in the right place. Notice that there's a but there in verse 15. He's contrasting two things. Folks, we'll either have fear or we'll be troubled or we'll set Jesus apart as Lord and King. And what I've discovered in my own life is when I'm not setting Jesus apart as Lord and King, when I'm starting to value something else more than Him, <laughs> that's when the fear and the troubledness comes in. And I've just got to go back to Him in prayer and just say, Lord, I'm feeling fearful, I'm feeling troubleful. Um, troubleful? Yes, that sounds right. Is, is there any reason why this is happening? Please open my eyes. And almost invariably, I start to see that I'm, I'm not trusting God for something that I should be doing, but I'm feeling reluctant to do it. I'm, I'm one of the world's best procrastinators sometimes. I don't know if you can relate to this. Sometimes when I know I should be doing something, going to visit somebody, maybe challenging somebody about something, I just keep putting it off, putting it off. Um, and all the time, I've conned myself into thinking that actually I'm not doing it because I don't want to do it. It's just that now's not a convenient time. But actually, it's because... I don't want to do it, so I'm putting it off. Procrastinate. We need to put Jesus in charge. You know, that's the only way to live as a complete human being, with Jesus in charge. It's the only way to live, because that's how he created us to be. He he created us to be in relationship with him and submitted to him. If we start living apart from that we're not living as true full human beings i know it's tough but the joy but the peace but the lack of fear but the confidence all of those things start to flood in so let's just sum it all up inward build and maintain a healthy church community what is there that you could do this week to contribute towards the health of our church family is there something you could do? Think about it. Do it. Outward. Get into the habit of not retaliating. Live right. Boy, there's so many challenges here. Witness fearlessly. And folks, remember that when we're witnessing, we don't need to get the person from being a com- completely unsaved to being completely slave- saved. No, we, we don't have to push them along that whole process. We just need to be part of the... Part of the process part of the step doesn't need to be a big thing even by saying to that lady i'm praying that it'll be same for you as it is for me is bearing witness to something isn't it that i think prayers count and there's someone to pray for and i wouldn't be surprised if maybe over the weeks i might bump into her again there maybe she'll have some questions for me i don't know but we just do it we do what god calls us to do and then lastly upward let's just be aware of god Most importantly, you know, Jesus is the all-surpassing treasure. There is nothing that compares to him. He's in a a category completely on his own. So let's make sure that we're treating him like he is in a category of his own. He's a treasure that surpasses every other. Shall we pray? Sometimes um, in moments like these, it's really good just to spend a, f- a minute or so, just in silence, and, and asking the Holy Spirit what He's highlighted um, and what He wants to give you the power to do things that maybe you've struggled to do before. Um, but he, he He just wants to give you the power and the strength um, to do those things. What are they? Father God, just in closing, um, I just think of of what Kathy was sharing this morning about how Christians that are persecuted or have been persecuted say you know don't don't pray that we'll be taken out of the persecution. pray that that we will bear up under the persecution that we will get through it because there are such blessings there there is a depth of relationship that that, that cannot be enjoyed um, when we're not being perse- persecuted, and so we we just want to pray for those whatever it is 320 million Christians that are being persecuted today. Um, we we pray for them. We ask that you would give them strength. We ask that they would experience your blessing. We pray that they would overflow with hope for the future that one day they would be vindicated, one day justice would be done, that they would stand before you in victory um, when, when Christ returns. We, we do pray for them and we remember them. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.